Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, October 28th. I'm Margaret Talif, in for Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're watching today. A new law makes it harder to hide money in art. Plus, debate over the right to die movement in Latin America. But first, today's one big thing. Biden's Build Back Better goes global. President Biden is heading to Rome today for the G20 summit. It will be the first time most of the world's largest economies will meet in person since the pandemic began. Axios' Zach Basu joins us now with more details on how Biden is bringing his Build Back Better agenda to the global stage. Good morning, Zach. Hey, Margaret. How's it going? Zach, President Biden is leaving behind D.C. and the whole domestic drama around infrastructure and the big social spending plan for a couple of days. But you say that there is a Build Back Better parallel on the world stage with this summit. Yeah, so I think a lot of Western leaders have tapped into this same theme that President Biden identified during his campaign. Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, actually uses the same Build Back Better slogan uh, as Biden for his domestic agenda. Uh, The European Union uses similar language for their green recovery plan. So there really is this shared understanding that the world can take advantage of this terrible pandemic and use it to confront another crisis, which is climate change. The G20, which is made up of the world's largest economies and also uh, a group that's responsible for about 75% of global emissions, they're going to be addressing these pressing issues that you'd expect from a global gathering like this, you know, COVID and vaccines, climate change, and the economic recovery. But The focus is really going to be on integrating all three of those. But there are two big world leaders, China's President Xi and Russia's President Putin, who are actually not going to be at this summit. They're often like the biggest roadblocks to some of the U.S. and Western-led initiatives or discussions. So I'm curious whether you think their absence makes it harder or easier for anything to get done at the summit. Yeah, so that's a tricky question. So both of these leaders, uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, are choosing not to travel due to covid And obviously that makes personal diplomacy much more difficult, especially on an issue like climate where it's so critical to get China on board. So, you know, Xi and Putin will obviously have their representatives there in person, but, you know, we'll see if the fact that the leaders are dialing in virtually will diminish their influence. I don't think anybody knows for sure. Fractured is also a word that you have used to describe what this meeting is going to feel like. A lot of these countries in the G20 are struggling with their own domestic drama. How big a factor is all that fracturing? As much as people like to say that U.S. domestic politics are a mess, the other G20 countries are, of course, dealing with their own crises. The EU is facing these severe fuel shortages that are making the conversation about an energy transition much more complicated. There's also this huge internal fight with Poland over the rule of law and democratic backsliding. And then, of course, there's a lot of debate about Europe and other G20 countries' role in this era of great power competition between the U.S. and China, which is a priority for the Biden administration. But it's also a very tense relationship that could make it difficult to come to an agreement on something like climate. Axios' national security reporter, Zach Basu. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Margaret. We'll be back in 15 seconds with new efforts against laundering money through art. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Margaret Tollif. Art trading has long been a way for some wealthy Americans to evade taxes and launder money. But a new bill going into effect this December will require art dealers to confirm the identity of buyers and sellers. 
Here to explain why it matters is Axios' business editor, Kate Marino. Hey, Kate. Hey. Let's start at the beginning. What problem is this legislation actually trying to address? It's a couple problems, really. And one is that when someone has a lot of money that they want to launder, you know, because it's been generated by criminal activity or even money that they just want to avoid taxes on, if they can make a big ticket purchase that's not traceable um, and they can make it anonymously, then it allows them to hide or clean their money easily. And the arts and antiquities markets is one of the biggest markets that up until now is quote unquote unregulated in that sense. The other problem that the new legislation is meant to address is just looting of cultural sites in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, where criminals are stealing artifacts and then they can easily and anonymously sell them through dealers and intermediaries. So what does the bill actually do and how enforceable is it? It requires arts and antiquities dealers to be subject to the same requirements as financial institutions. And that means that they'll have to confirm the ultimate buyer and seller of goods. In other words, not just the agent or the intermediary who's buying or selling as a front person, but the actual person who's going to either buy the item or get the money from an item being sold. But the enforcement question is a big one because, of course, if there's not enough resources for enforcement, then they don't really have a lot of teeth. So the, the resources actually dedicated to this will be a big question going forward. Is this being embraced by the art world or is the art world horrified and trying to stop it? I mean, I think most people like on the record would say, oh, we're completely, you know, happy to comply with any and all regulations and we don't want to be a conduit of criminal behavior. But underneath that, it is a really big change for a market that is quite accustomed to a high level of privacy and a very high level of anonymity. So, you know, there might be less trading going on in arts and antiquities for a little while as this kind of shakes out, but it's definitely going to be a shock to the system. Kate Marino is the business editor at Axios. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Earlier this month, Martha Sepulveda, a 51-year-old Colombian woman with ALS, was scheduled to become the first person in Colombia to die by legally authorized euthanasia. But her permit for the procedure was pulled at the last minute by a panel of clinic directors. Her case has sparked new debate on so-called right to die across Latin America. Marina Franco, reporter for Telemundo News, is covering how the debate is playing out and how it compares to the U.S. Marina, what happened in Martha Sepulveda's case? Yeah, Sepulveda does have ALS. However, her prognosis is not yet terminal. And... She, in August, had received an October 10th date for the procedure. Uh, A couple of days before that, she appeared at an interview in a local channel where she was seen very smiley, drinking a beer, all in the context of her discussing how relieved she was that she was finally going to be able to access this end-of-life procedure as she wished to. And then the clinic that was said to carry out the procedure met behind closed doors without telling her and decided that the interview was evidence that she wasn't in as much pain as she was saying she was. And so that was canceled. But they did not do any sort of medical checkups on Sepulveda herself. And that is why her lawyers and family are appealing the decision. Where else is this playing out other than Colombia? Colombia is a sort of pioneer in the region. 
because this has been legal since 1997 and already 123 people have had uh, end-of-life procedures. In Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, there are very similar laws under discussion right now. In Argentina and Uruguay, they are in committee decisions. And in Chile, a law for uh, legal euthanasia has already been voted on by the lower house and is pending in the Senate. Right to die has long been a debate in the United States. Where does that stand right now? It has. And I think that's why the Sepulveda case has made a, a lot of noise even outside of Latin America. Currently in the U.S., 10 states allow what is called right to die laws. For some, it's just being able to sign do not resuscitate or do not intubate kind of decisions. And then for others, it is being able to get medically assisted death. Uh, so still very much a, an ongoing debate. But in the U.S., I do think that it has gone forward more than it has in Latin America. Marina Franco is a reporter for Telemundo News and one of the co-authors of Axios Latino. Thanks, Marina. Thank you for having me. That's all we've got for you today. I'm Margaret Tolliff. Stay safe and thanks for listening. I'll be back with you here tomorrow morning. We've been sharing other podcasts that you can check out. The new podcast, How We Survive, explores the business of adapting to an inhospitable planet and how finding solutions to the climate crisis is a messy business. It's hosted by Molly Wood. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.